Yeah, what a privilege to worship with you Sunday after Sunday. It brings me such joy to be a part of this faith family. Uh, and if you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Micah? Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up that pew Bible in front of you. And uh, if you're using that pew Bible, you'll find Micah chapter 7 on page 828. Page 828 in the Pew Bible, Micah chapter 7. Uh, while you're turning there, a couple of quick notes for you. Um, first of all, uh, next Sunday is my last Sunday before I start a sabbatical leave. And so I just want to express my gratitude now, and I'll do it again uh, to the church. That This is an incredibly generous benefit that you offer to the staff, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. I've got very mixed feelings about going on sabbatical. I'm looking forward to rest and recharge and putting my brain in a different place for a bit. Uh, I'm not looking forward to being away because I love you. I'm proud to be your pastor. I love our church, and uh, so I will miss you uh, very, very much during that time away. But uh, grateful for uh, a staff that's beyond competent and uh, a team of preachers that will uh, hold down the pulpit faithfully over the summer and uh, look forward to the rest. And of course, I already look forward to being back with you. Um, and then also, I want to make sure you know that you are all invited to a wedding on July 1st, right here. My daughter, Emma, is getting married to Elizabeth's son, Trevor, and uh, you're all invited. I'm absolutely serious when I say you're all invited. Uh, Saturday, July 1st, 2 o'clock, uh, I want you to come wear your best seersucker. It's going to be a beautiful day, and uh, I'm excited that we get to celebrate with whoever we get to celebrate with. Trevor is a son of the church. Emma is a daughter of the church. Uh, you are the family of the bride and groom, and uh, we want you to be here and uh, to celebrate with us. All right. Today is our 13th Sunday with the prophet Micah. In 13 Sundays, we've covered 30 years of Micah's ministry. One of the most important details about Micah the man uh, is given to us in the opening lines of this relatively small book. It's when he introduces himself. You see, the name Micah has a meaning to it. The name Micah means, who is like the Lord? It's the question that drove his ministry. When that question is asked in the direction of God, it's a statement of praise. Who is like the Lord? And when that question is asked in the direction of us, it's a question of challenge. Who is like the Lord? You? Are we like the Lord? Are we giving our hearts to anyone else who, who is like Him or unlike Him? What are we doing with this God who is utterly unique? It's a question that meets us as modern readers. Who is like God? Who compares to his compassion, his faithfulness, his promise keeping, his glory, his might, his holiness? Throughout Micah's ministry, he held God in front of his people in order to bring home those who were wandering. 
as well as to strengthen those who were hurting. And that's what the prophet's message does for us as well today. What do you think about God? Is He one of many gods? Is He just the God at the top of the mountain of all world religions? Is God just the name that we give to a base evolutionistic desire for the supernatural? Is he a moral monster who's indifferent to the sufferings of this life? Can I just tell you, the God of our imaginations is always a lesser God. He is small and unbelievable. But the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God whose image you bear is unique in his love for you. He's a God worthy of our lives. And so as we bring the book of Micah to a close this morning, I want us to see God for who he is, that there is no one like him. He is beyond compare. My goal today in preaching this passage is to help you with your vision. I want you to see God clearly. Micah's ministry comes to a close with the question, who is a God like you? He asks it in praise of God. He asks it as an invitation to us. And in Micah's closing words, we learn three ways that God is utterly unique. I want you to follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Micah is the speaker. He begins by speaking to God, and he says this. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession they live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. God answers, I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. And now Micah speaks again, verse 16. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths. Their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord, our God. They will stand in awe of you. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Micah's ministry comes to a close with this question, who is a God like you? He asks it in praise of God. He's inviting us with that question. He, he begins in verse 14 with a prayer to God. God answers in verse 15. And then the remainder of the passage is Micah exulting in praise at the utter uniqueness of God. Verse 18 is where the key question lies. The whole passage is wrapped around that question, who is a God like you? And Micah answers that question by showing us three ways God is utterly, wonderfully, beautifully unique. 
What does God do that no one else does? First of all, God alone gives peace. You've got to know this, that God alone gives peace. In verse 14, Micah begins with a word of prayer. And he says this, he says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. So Micah prays for God to care for his people using the image of a shepherd taking care of his sheep. This is a favorite word picture of Micah's. He's used it multiple times over the course of his prophetic career. We come across that language multiple places in the book of Micah. Most prominently, it's found in chapter 5, verse 4, where Micah is speaking of the Messiah's ministry to his people. And he says of the Messiah, he will stand and shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord. So Micah's prayer is that the shepherd would care for his sheep, the flock that belongs to him. In other words, he's praying this, God, be a shepherd to your flock. God, be God to us. That's his prayer. God, be God to your people. And then Micah prays the three specific ways that God would shepherd his people. First of all, he prays for God's protection. In verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. The word that's translated staff is descriptive of this very thick and long stick that a shepherd would carry with him for the purpose of Uh, defending sheep against wild animals or attackers. Uh, A shepherd would carry two sticks with him. He would have his staff, which was used for guiding the sheep. He would have his rod, which is used for thumping, attacking enemies on the head. And so uh, the word is translated staff here in verse 14, but that Hebrew word translated staff in Micah 7.14 is translated as rod in Psalm 23.4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when Micah prays for God to shepherd his people with his staff, he's praying for his protection. God, in all of your might, all of your strength, all your muscle, against every threat, every trial, every enemy, protect your people. Shepherd them with your rod. And I think God's protection over his people informs the next line of verse 14 where Micah says they live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. I think he's describing the flourishing that happens when we live in the protection, under the protection of God. Since we have the shepherd's protection, we're able to live in this woodland surrounded by pastures. Again, it takes me back to Psalm uh, 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's what the good shepherd does. So Micah prays for God to care for his people through his protection. Second, he prays that God would care for them through his provision. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. So he's praying that God would nourish them, provide for them, enable them to grow and to be healthy, to be fruitful and multiply. This is a God, give us this day our daily bread type of prayer. Let them graze. He's asking God to provide all that his people need. 
And then third and finally, he prays for God to shepherd his people by putting them in his appointed place. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. Uh, Bashan and Gilead were two territories that were known for their fertility. These were prime places for you to raise your sheep. They were pieces of property that were part of the promised land. Once upon a time, it belonged to God's people, and then it was taken from them. And so when Micah prays, God, let your people graze in Bashan and Gilead, he's praying that that which was lost would be restored, that that promised land would be given back to them. So Micah is praying that God would shepherd his people by protecting them, by providing for them, and by putting them in the place that he has appointed for them. And when you have God's protection and God's provision in God's place, all of those things combined are what I'm calling peace. Peace is also what Micah said the Messiah would deliver back in chapter 5 when he is talking about the Messiah's shepherding ministry. He said in Micah 5, 5, he will be their peace. He's the only one that can grant us peace this peace. Now, now, look, to be sure, there are a lot of things that can bring a lesser peace or a temporary peace. There might be things that you're, you're easily able to identify and say, this is where I'm at peace or how I feel peace. The end of conflict, the restoration of a relationship, the absence of stress, a great cup of coffee, a bowl of ice cream. Maybe you find peace through exercise or by finishing a project or just by having your home clean or your life in this neat, orderly fashion. Those are things that, that give peace. But all these are lesser forms of God's ultimate peace. God's peace is true peace. It is the essence of peace. His peace is not merely the absence of conflict and stress, but it is the ability to flourish. And it's not circumstantial. God's peace is not based on our lives being free of conflict or turmoil. Rather, God's peace is transcendent. The person who trusts the Lord has his peace even in the midst of great difficulty. The person who has God's peace is able to flourish even in the midst of trial and conflict. You walked in here today limping. I saw you when you came in the door. You're carrying grief and hurt with you. But when you have the Lord's peace, even though you struggle, still you flourish in his purposes for you. You don't have to wait for things to be cleaned up and tidy and to be set right to know His peace. You have it here and now, even though you're hard-pressed on every side. Now, many people think that peace is something that we craft or achieve for ourselves, but God's people know the secret of His peace. It's a gift from Him. He gives it to us, and He gives it freely. In John chapter 14, Jesus is just hours away from the cross. And there in the shadow of the cross, he speaks comfort to his disciples. And here's one of the things he said to them in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then he went to the cross. I'm leaving you this peace. I'm going to go die now 
in your place for your sin. Every bit of personal warfare and turmoil and fear and panic died at the cross with Jesus. And the cross is where our good shepherd protects us. And the cross is where the good shepherd provides for us the forgiveness we need for our sin. The cross is the appointed place where the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Now look, sometimes we go through situations in our lives that are so intense that peace eludes us. And you might even think right now, hey, I can't have peace until my conflict is resolved. But if Jesus had peace in the shadow of the cross, and if he gifted that peace to you, then you can know God's peace today, even though you've got trials and turmoil all around. You can flourish, even in a situation that seems impossible. This has always been the way for people who follow Jesus. In every generation and against every adversary, God's people have flourished in his peace while they waited on eternal peace. And that's the sort of peace that comes only from God. Utterly unique in the peace that he gives. God alone gives us peace. That's not the only way he's unique, though, here at the end of Micah's ministry. He's unique in that he gives peace, but the second way he's unique is that God alone delivers his people. God alone is our deliverer in verses 15 to 17. Now, these verses are really interesting. One thing that's a challenge when you study Micah is it can be hard sometimes to identify who is the speaker and to whom is the speaker speaking. And we have a situation like that here in verses 15 to 17. As I read it earlier, I tried to articulate my conclusions as to who I think is speaking and to whom. And so Micah speaks in verse 14. He speaks to God. He's praying, God, shepherd your people. Verse 15, God answers Micah. That's my take anyways. God is the speaker in verse 15. He says, I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. And then verses 16 to 17, Micah is speaking again. Micah prayed, God answered. Now Micah turns to everyone and responds to God's promise. Verse 16, nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They'll put their hands over their mouths. Their ears will become deaf. They'll lick the dust like a snake. They'll come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. And now Micah shifts from talking to the people. He talks to God now. They will stand in awe of you. So, Micah prays, God shepherd us. God answers, I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. God promised a miraculous deliverance similar to the deliverance of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. God will grant his people eternal peace through this new exodus. It'll be a miraculous exodus out of their ultimate bondage and into their ultimate freedom. The first exodus was led by God's given deliverer, a man named Moses. But this new exodus is led by the deliverer sent by God. It's God's own son, Jesus, who in Micah chapter 2, verse 12, you remember what he's called there? He's called the breaker. He's going to break his people out of their bondage. That's the leader of the new exodus. 
The first exodus found God's people enslaved to their national enemy, Egypt. This new exodus finds God's people enslaved to their great spiritual enemy, Satan. The first exodus was established by miracles like the plagues, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision in the wilderness. But the new exodus, it also has its miracles, the incarnation of God the Son, the death of of God the Son at the cross, the resurrection of God the Son from the dead three days after he died. That first exodus brought shame on Egypt at the unstoppable power of God. And look how nations respond to the new exodus according to Micah. Starting in verse 16, nations will see and they'll be ashamed of all their power. So Micah describes their frustration They can't use their power to disrupt the security of God's restored people. They will put their hands over their mouths. Their ears will become deaf. Micah describes their confusion. They won't believe what they hear when God's people experience his good fortune. Verse 17, they will lick the dust like a snake. They'll come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. Micah describes their humiliation. It's a picture of their utter defeat and submission And then he says, they will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. They will stand in awe of you. Micah describes here their intimidation. You see, this trembling is not the fear of repentance or faith. It's not the awe uh, that the prophet Isaiah experienced in the presence of God. This is terror without trust or hope. It's fright. That's the response of rebellious people in the face of God who is the judge of all mankind. You see, the nations face an either-or situation. Last week in verses 11 and 12, the nations can come to God in submission. Or according to verses 16 and 17, they will come to him in panic. Jesus is the new and greater Moses who gives a new and greater deliverance to his new and greater covenant people. Who else is going to deliver you from your guilt and shame? How are you going to deal with that? How do you deal with it now on on a regular basis? What do you do with the impact of your sin on your life and the sin, the guilt, the shame that it heaps on you? Who else is going to deliver you from it? Look, the world does not think that you need deliverance. The world teaches that your sinful brokenness only needs to be accepted. According to the world, we don't need deliverance. We only need to discover who we truly are. It would be like going to the doctor and receiving a fatal diagnosis. And instead of prescribing treatment, the doctor throws a party. We've discovered your true self in all of your sickness, all of your disease, all all this invasive brokenness. Death is imminent. Let's celebrate. That's nothing to be proud of. That's not love. That's not compassion. That's not mercy. It's not deliverance. Only 
God delivers us from our sin and our shame and our guilt. Only he lifts us out of death and gives us new life. Only he comes to save us. God alone, our miracle-working God, is the God who delivers us. Only God can give us peace. Only God can deliver you. And finally, God alone gives eternal life. There's no one else. God alone gives eternal life. Verse 18 opens with Micah's key question. It's the question that drove his entire ministry. Who is a God like you? He asks that question of God. It's a statement of praise. He asks that question of Cody, of you. It's, it's a question of challenge. What has he done for you? Who is a God like him? Who is faithful like he's faithful? Who's compassionate like him? Who's holy like him? Who gives peace like him? Who delivers like he does? Who gives eternal life like him? There is no one like this God. And according to Micah, here's why God is so incredible. In verse 18, he tells us this. He says, he forgives iniquity. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't tell you, here's the road to get away from iniquity. Here's how you find me in your life journeys. He comes to you. He eliminates the mountain of requirement. And he comes to us to eliminate, to forgive our iniquity. He passes over rebellion. It's like rewarding a person who commits treason. He, he passes over rebellion. He's not angry forever. But he delights in faithful love. Faithful love, that's, that's a key word in the book of Micah. It's the same word found in chapter 6, verse 8. The, the verse that everyone loves from this book. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy. Or to love faithful love. Faithful love, that's the word here. He's a God who loves faithful love. Why does he require us to love faithful love? Because he himself loves faithful love. That's the kind of God he is. God is faithful when we are unfaithful. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's by grace we're saved by faith, not by works so that no one can boast. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him will never die, but will have everlasting life. And what do you suppose happens when a God like that meets sinners like us? Well, Micah tells us in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That word vanquish, it means that he will trample them underfoot. He will trample down our sin and our destruction. And then he'll cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea is where Pharaoh's army was destroyed at the Exodus event. So our sin will meet the same metaphorical fate by the compassion of God and the protection of the good shepherd. What will you do with your sin and shame. They are a horrible burden to bear. Jesus takes them, tramples them down, and casts them into the sea. As I thought about this verse in Micah, I was reminded of another verse, one that's perplexed me from time to time. 
We read it last week in worship. I don't know if you'll remember this or not. It's Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. I want you to look at what John the Apostle said. He said, as he sees the, the new heaven and the new earth, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I've always wondered about that line. What does that mean, the sea was no more? I, I've read other people, heard other people say, well, it just means that every scary thing is gone. And, and that's right. But I think you can understand it at a deeper level, thanks to Micah. This description is of the totality of our deliverance. Jesus casts our sins into the depths of the sea, and then the sea is no more. I, just, I want you to think about that for a moment. Your sin is cast into the depths of the sea, imprisoned in a watery tomb. And then Jesus takes that sea and just flicks it into oblivion. He doesn't keep score. He, he forgives your sins, casts them away as far as the east is from the west. Your sin, shame, guilt, gone forever. Your accuser, silenced forever. Your fear, gone forever. Your brokenness, healed forever. And in place of these things, eternal life, eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal hallelujahs. Who is a God like that? There's no one else like him. And Micah closes with this final statement of trust in verse 20. He says, You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Look, there, there's our key word again, faithful love. It keeps showing up in Micah's ministry. And God's faithful love is rooted in promises that he made to Abraham and Jacob, the fathers of our faith. God's faithfulness to you is the way in which he keeps his promises to Abraham and Jacob. And that keeping of promises was the sort of thing that inspired worship. What key event in human history is the place where God fully, completely keeps his promise to Abraham and to Jacob? Well, the Virgin Mary wrote a song about it. When she heard that she was going to give birth to the Christ child, she wrote a worship song. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary sang this, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And then at the birth of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, who would herald the ministry of the Messiah, John's father Zechariah sang of the coming of the Messiah and he said God has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham look don't you see that God's promise to Abraham and Jacob the promise celebrated by Micah sung about by Mary and by Zechariah that promise is fulfilled in Christ Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's faithful love. And eternal life is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. Is he your Savior? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Not as a good luck charm. Not as the, the keeper of heavenly karma. I mean, has he rescued you from your sin? 
Friend, my question is not, were you baptized as an infant? My question is, have you turned from your sin and your shame and put your trust in Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your sin at the cross? No one else can do that. No one else has done that. He alone is fully God and fully man. The gift of God, the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. And at the cross, he died in your place, though he was sinless and perfect, as if he was guilty of every sin you've committed. He took in full the wrath of God for your sin. And there's no more wrath for you to carry. Three days later, he rose from the dead. If he really rose from the dead, then life is found in him and only in him. There's no one else. He's not a way or one way. He's the way. And his promise to you is this, if you'll, if you'll turn, hear his call and turn from your sin, turn from all the things you think make you righteous, if you'll turn to him and trust in him, he'll save you. He'll give you eternal life, forgive you, cast your sins into the sea, and then do away with that sea forever. You're his child, and he's your father forever and ever. And if today's your day to do that, you might do it just through a simple prayer Micah prayed a prayer and he got the ear of God and I promise you this, if you'll pray a prayer like this today, you'll have God's ear. If you'd say something like, God, I I know that I'm a sinner. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I need rescue from you. I know that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. I'm putting everything on Jesus. I'm giving my life to follow him. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for my eternal life. And friend, God hears and God answers and you're his when that prayer reflects the sincerity of your heart. Are you ready to be delivered? Are you ready to know God's peace? Are you ready to have eternal life? Then hear his call today and turn to him and make him yours. Micah brings his book to a close by showing us these three ways that God is utterly unique. No one like him. He alone gives peace. He alone is our deliverer. He alone gives eternal life. Who is a God like him? There's no one else. Brothers and sisters, this is the end of the book of Micah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Who is a God like you, forgiving sin, passing over rebellion, trampling down our iniquities, casting our sin into the sea? There's no one who has loved us as you have. And no one among us is like you. We are all rebels and sinners through and through. But in your grace, you have shown yourself faithful and compassionate, the God who loves faithful love. So thank you for the salvation that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Let that be true today for those who would call on your name, who have heard your call today, God, and who have turned to Jesus in faith. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would anchor us in your peace that we would celebrate your deliverance. Lord, that we would live your eternal life here and now. Thank you for the gift of Micah's ministry and how it shows us 
Christ and how it shows us your utterly unique character. There's no one like you, and it is our privilege and our joy to be your people. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul.